This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 24th of July 2021 on Monocle 24. Hello, I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Coming up in the next half an hour, Simon Brook joins me to chat through the day's front pages, and then... They are seen by many as a simple courtesy, a way of nodding to a common good. They will remain for a long time. But is this commitment also an indication that we no longer have our old appetite for risk? If the government says we can abandon our masks, why don't we all? Our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, gives us his latest reflections and Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. We'll also hear from our Olympics correspondent in Tokyo with his impressions of the opening ceremony. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. China said on Friday that it's imposed counter-sanctions on U.S. individuals, including former U.S. Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, in response to recent U.S. sanctions on Chinese officials in Hong Kong. The sanctions are the first imposed by China under its new anti-foreign sanction law passed in June. Gunfire disrupted the state funeral of Haiti's assassinated President Juvenal Moise on Friday. The event was intended to foster national unity, but the unrest reflected deep divisions over the July the 7th atrocity, in which suspected foreign gunmen walked apparently unchallenged into the Moise's residence and shot the president multiple times, also injuring his wife. And the Israeli Olympic team members killed by Palestinian gunmen at the 1972 Munich Olympics were remembered during the Tokyo Olympics opening ceremony on Friday with a moment of silence, the first time in 49 years. The families of the 11 killed had long asked the International Olympic Committee to hold a minute's silence at a Games opening ceremony, but had been turned down for almost half a century. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Well, now it's time to have a browse through this morning's newspapers, and I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Brook, the journalist and communications consultant. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. I think we should just tell the listeners what happened when you arrived this morning. <laughs> yeah, I nearly killed you, didn't I? Yes. Which I? Which I usually try not to do when I come on the programme. But uh, yeah, sorry about that. I, I could have crept up to you even more closely when you were having that quiet fag and said, morning, but I decided to do it from a distance. But it, I'm, afraid it I'm, I'm sorry. It completely I, freaked me out. I'm sorry. <laughs> still shaking aren't you sorry about that <laughs> it was a little bit scary but actually i have to say not nearly as scary as what was going on in parliament this week i was absolutely shocked as were many many others uh, by this scene let's listen to dawn butler in the house of commons the prime minister said we have severed the link between infection and serious disease and death not only is this not true madam deputy speaker but it is dangerous and it's dangerous to line the pandemic and i'm disappointed that the prime minister has not come to the house to correct the record and to correct the fact that he has lied to this house and the country over and over again order, order. i'm i'm sure that the um the member will um, reflect on um, her words, just saying, perhaps correct the record. 
Madam Deputy Speaker, what would you rather, a weakened leg or a severed leg? You know, at the end of the day, the Prime Minister has lied to this House time and time again. And it's funny that we get in trouble in this place for calling out the lie rather than the person lying. Order, order, order. Order. Can you re please, please reflect on your words and withdraw your remarks? Deputy Speaker, I've reflected on my words and somebody needs to tell the truth in this House that the Prime Minister has lied. Under the power given me by standing order number 43, I order the member to withdraw immediately from the House for the remainder of the day's sitting. And there, there you have it. A woman stands up and tells the truth about the Prime Minister misleading the country. And this is something that has been proven over and over again. We know the Prime Minister has lied. And yet she is the one censured and told to leave Parliament. Now, I understand that actually this goes back to some pretty ancient laws in Parliament. You're also not allowed to say that somebody's drunk or call them a cad or a, or a, any of those kind of very ancient... Exactly. <laughs> uh, and it comes within those mm. rules. Yeah. Clearly, they need to be revisited. Visited. But yeah. here was a woman trying to tell the truth and she was censured for it. Yeah, I think, as you say, it's the historical perspective, isn't it? These traditional rules were put in place perhaps at a time when people had more respect for politicians, when politicians were less likely, some people might say, to lie. So I think it's an example, really, of how uh, the the traditional rules and, and uh, customs, if you like, of the House of Commons are not keeping... Uh, up to speed with the way things have developed and of course it, it opens the whole question doesn't it of the lack of trust in politicians and there was a time um, I mean back in the 80s um, when Neil Clinic was leader of the opposition there was a lot of controversy when he implied that the then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher had lied whether she had or not we, we don't know but uh, it was over a particular case of a, the prosecution of a civil servant but that was considered incredibly controversial then but it's interesting now that as you say uh, the idea of a politician misleading the House of Commons, which used to be a reason for resigning, it sort of goes by the by and well these things happen which I think is very worrying. Mm. Now what Butler did in, in the sort of longer form of the speech is she referenced a film by Peter Stefanovic uh, which has now got I think over 28 million views online, has not been shown on any state broadcaster where he basically plays the Prime Minister making various uh, announcements and then comes in with the truth you know for instance the amount of money given to the NHS, a lie uh, the uh, um, uh, um, bursaries for nurses, a lie, and, and all of these things. And he points these out, and, and Butler picks up on, on many of those things. Uh, and he is absolutely shocked by the fact that this hasn't been shown on the mainstream media. And I think it's really interesting to look at how the media has actually dealt with this. You've got your traditional left-leaning papers like The Guardian and The Independent going, this is outrageous. The Telegraph, however, is seeking to excuse it. Yeah, The Telegraph just talks about this being name-calling, um, their correspondent... Uh, Makes uh, argues that actually this really won't have much effect at all. That uh, you know that 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 uh, even if they're trying in some way to uh, to appeal to in a sort of you know to to in the to the electorate or whatever uh, name calling won't endear to the public. Um, uh, they say in the Telegraph. But I think the question is. Um, to what extent can Boris Johnson just get away with it? I mean, it's, it is shocking, as you say, that you can place these statements made by the Prime Minister and then show that they are completely untrue. Now, people might argue that politicians have long, you know, 
played sailed close to the wind when it comes to is that is that right is that completely true or is it just a way of twisting the facts slightly a slight exaggeration a choice of words which gives them a bit of leeway i don't know but i think what's interesting about this case is that these there are so many examples as you say of where the prime minister has clearly just not told the truth i mean he's said something that isn't true and i suppose this is the kind of thing that the inquiry into the pandemic whenever that happens you know that that hopefully will pick up on some of these uh, examples i suppose the bigger question is to what extent are the public generally concerned about politicians lying i mean you think of donald trump you think of a whole range of populist politicians across the the world that have blatantly told lies and somehow seem to get away with mm. it so 52% though simon 52% of people in the uk think that boris johnson's fine and that it's all okay i mean here's another example of of what happened this week you've also got jacob jacob reese mogg referring to yellow peril i mean that's an incredibly racist remark he was told off for it, but he came back saying, oh, he didn't realise it was racist. It had come out of ignorance. Well, for heaven's <laughs> sake, what on earth are you doing in Parliament if you do not understand Welcome that that is... Welcome to 2021. Yeah. And then, of course, the other thing is that there were three MPs who attempted to influence a court case involving the rapist Dover MP, Elphick, um, Charlie Elphick, who uh, they, they tried to, to basically change the way justice was working. What did they get? One day suspension from Parliament on the last day, Basically, they got an extra day of holiday. I mean, this is extraordinary and we don't seem to be talking about it. No, absolutely. And I think it's really worrying. And of course, the problem is this. I mentioned populism and, and populist p politicians, leaders who do lie. But the problem is, of course, one of the reasons for the growth of populism and extremism, extreme politics on both ends of the spectrum is, of course, a, a, gis, a distrust uh, of the mainstream medium and mainstream politicians, if you like, that central sort of political uh, point on the spectrum that most people have some connection with. So, yeah, I think this is this is absolutely the the more this kind of thing happens, the less trust there will be in the system, the establishment, and, and we're all going to suffer in the long run. Mm. Now, of course, the latest uh, uh, area where I suppose we have to say it's up to us, we can no longer trust these politicians, is the much vaunted Freedom Day. We were told it was okay to fling off our and embrace freedom on the 19th. It clearly wasn't. The government tried to row back on that without saying, actually, we got it wrong. Uh, Andrew Tuck is very interesting on that in, in his column where he talks about uh, losing the mask. Let's, let's have a listen. On Monday, most COVID restrictions were dropped in England in what the press and many in government heralded as Freedom Day. It comes as case numbers climb ever higher and with predictions that we could hit 100,000 a day very soon. But here in London, most people seem to be happy with the move, judging by the busy streets, the packed cafes and the almost bustling shops. Yet the unwinding, the return to normal, also comes with caveats, both official and self-imposed. Public transport, Uber, hospitals have all said that masks must stay on faces. Yet, even in settings where they're no longer legally required, shops, they have not been totally abandoned. They are seen by many as a simple courtesy, a way of nodding to a common good. They will remain for a long time. But is this commitment also an indication that we no longer have our old appetite for risk? If the government says we can abandon our masks, why don't we all? 
It's hard to know precisely what's happening just yet. People, for example, say that the young already backed their old ways. But I don't think you can guess who has been dented or changed by the past months just by knowing when they were born. On the London underground, the mask refuseniks are a disparate bunch. A middle-aged man in a pinstripe suit, two men in decorators' overalls, a young woman, although her boyfriend is masked. And is this group mastery because they've done any kind of mental risk assessment? A neighbour tells me that his girlfriend tries to avoid putting one on only because it smears her makeup. But there is some nervousness still at play. The way that the travel rules have chopped and changed has dented people's attempts to be mobile. The complexities of the testing regime for foreign travel have not helped either. People have become wary that until the plane takes off, this could all go to pot. I also feel it. When plans are made, I dampen excitement, aware of how many things have frayed at the last minute in recent months. I pack bags, not entirely convinced that they will be going anywhere. I make dinner plans, knowing that a ping from the COVID tracing app may scupper everything. Perhaps it's not that we've become risk-averse, but rather we've become disappointment-aware. Knowing that this may not happen has become an insurance policy to get us past any feelings of disappointment. We will all look back at some point and see more clearly how the pandemic changed us. Because even for those who were never sick, never lost anyone, kept their jobs, it has shaped us. Just as we cannot see how subtly the sun hitting our skin ages us, we have often failed to notice the subtler ways that the pandemic has touched our lives. Even the shruggers, the maskless young woman, the denier, it has shaped them all too. But once you know this, you can take the odd cancelled event, the pings, the forms and the tests in your stride and face risk again with a seasoned countenance. And in the end, we will remember that it can be oddly easier to look in the face of danger, well, a little risk, than bed down with endless disappointments. Many thanks to Andrew. And in fact, I fear he and I are going to share the same disappointment this afternoon. We've both been invited to the same garden party. And uh, <laughs> judging by the weather in London right now, I, I think... Masks would be least of your problems. <laughs> exactly. I think. I think it might be a, a, an issue. But of course, lots of disappointments. Uh, and, and particularly when you look back on this week uh, and, and see somebody who behaved really like a disappointed and jilted lover. I'm talking about Dominic Cummings, who, of course, was the Prime Minister's uh, advisor. Um, he's given his first television interview. He did that on Tuesday night. He spoke to the BBC's political editor, Laura Kunzberg, and made a series of damaging accusations against the government since he left his post towards the end of last year, particularly around its handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. Once again, he echoes Dawn Butler in the fact that the Prime Minister is essentially completely untruth- mm. untruthful. But he also says that the man is just incapable of holding that job, that actually no one's in charge, uh, that there is no plan. Uh, and uh, of, uh, of course, he was also pointing the finger at the former health secretary, Matt Hancock. Uh, one of the interesting things he said was that he discussed trying to get rid of Boris Johnson after the 2019 election. Yeah, it, I, I, I don't know. The funny thing about Dominic Cummings is I wonder 
I, wa- I, I think he's going to be historically very interesting. I think his, historians will pore over his whole career, his, uh, you know, for, from the uh, Brexit victory, as he would see it, that he scored right through to his, uh, yeah, the 2019 election and, and uh, the way he changed the way it's sort of political campaigning. Having said that, I wonder how many people really like Dominic Cummings, but don't like Boris Johnson. Do you know what I mean? I think he's got a very small constituency. Mm. Um, I think the other problem for Dominic Cummings, to some extent, is if things were so bad at number 10, if it was so dysfunctional, if things were so just just not working as they should and the government was making such a mess of the whole, um, the way the ha- it handled the pandemic, then why didn't he resign earlier? Why did he wait until he was finally sacked? And now, as you say, there's an element of sort of the jilted lover about him. Um, I think he's. I think he's. He's probably doing, to be quite honest, limited damage to uh, to to Boris Johnson because all he's saying is is sort of confirming things that have already been said about the prime minister, and that uh, many people, um, both within the Conservative Party and with, outside it, would agree. Uh, would agree on so he's not telling us anything new he's just sort of confirming that uh, that's the only thing but um, I think what he well you mentioned Matt Hancock I and mean, of course perversely uh, he actually was one of the people responsible for Matt Hancock hanging in there on the job because uh, Boris Johnson couldn't be seen to sack Hancock even if he didn't like him but yeah, as we know he probably didn't uh, because it would look as if he was giving in to Dominic Cummings so there's a sort of perverse uh, um, effect there of Dominic Cummings words but um, Certainly, I think this drip-drip feed of Cummings' comments will increase the chances of Tory MPs saying, actually, this government really is drifting, there's no sense of direction, it's not really a Tory government, a lot of uh, MPs would say, in terms of sort of personal freedoms and the way it's splashing money everywhere and things. So I think probably what Dominic Cummings has done with this interview with Laura Koonsberg is just to accelerate the time when uh, the, the men in grey suits, as they as they sometimes known, go to, to uh, Boris Johnson and say, your time's up, mate. Do you think so? Do you think that Cummings, I mean, as you say, he has a very small constituency. And I wonder, given his, his background, the fact that, that, that he was sacked uh, ultimately and that this clearly is his revenge, uh, how much people are, are really taking notice of him. I mean, he's not... Uh, yes, we are seeing WhatsApp messages and, and, and proof that the Prime Minister didn't care, for instance, if people over 80 died. But he's not saying anything we didn't know. We all know this about the Prime Minister. I mean, John uh, Cummings essentially said he was unfit to govern. Yes, which begs, begs the question, well, why did you work so hard to get him elected as Prime Minister then and the Conservatives? So, yes, you're right. It, 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 you know, he does have a very small constituency. Um, and I think the point is that what he's, as I say, what he's doing really is just adding more fuel to the fire, uh, making more and more people think this man really, I Boris Johnson, really isn't the person who can lead the country. So um, I think that the, the problem also, of course, is where you get a situation where it's clear that the advisers are bigger than the politicians. Mm. And we saw with Boris Johnson's predecessor, with Theresa May, with you know her, two of her key advisers, who many people would say got her into huge trouble. But what is coming out... What, about her time in office was that she was completely enthralled to them um, and however bad their advice were she would she would take it because she didn't have much sense of what else to do you could even take that back I suppose some people might say to people like uh, Alistair uh, 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 
to, to Tony Blair's uh, Alistair uh, Campbell. Campbell. Thank you, Alistair Campbell, Tony Blair's chief advisor, who of course became the story himself, uh, very much so. So the Alistair Campbells of this world, again, as big as uh, Tony Blair, mm. uh, and and sort of behind the scenes footage, if you like, of of Tony Blair and Alistair Campbell at number ten showed Alistair Campbell breezing into the office and telling the prime minister what was going to happen, sort of thing. Which uh, and as I say, the problem is when you get a, a, a an advisor who seems to be bigger, more influential, more just seems to have more about them than their leader, which is this the situation here, then that is really damaging, I think, for the politician in question, but also politics generally. Yeah, absolutely. And a, and a quick um, quick deviation here into uh, the Greensill affair, because uh, what you had in Jeremy Hayward, Lord Jeremy Hayward, who was head of the, the civil mm. service, uh, basically, he, so he died um, uh, of cancer back in 2018. Uh, and what's happening, according to his wife, uh, uh, Suzanne Hayward, uh, she's saying that basically he's being scapegoated for everything that happened. Uh, and uh, interestingly enough, if people want to follow that, we've got a really good interview with her in our archives uh, on Meet the Writer. She's written a book with her husband before he died. She's collaborated with him and then spoke to all of these different people in Parliament and and really kind of gives us the nuts and bolts of how it actually works. Uh, so so that's a, a great interview to, to look out for. And of course, if you haven't yet seen the, the Cummings-Kunzberg interview, that's something you should do. What it did do was provide Andrew Muller rich pickings <laughs> for his monologue, What We Learned. <laughs> We learned this week that UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson is psychologically and temperamentally unsuited to the high office he holds and is pretty much the last person you'd want in charge of a serious country at the best of times, never mind during a pandemic combined with a self-inflicted economic, political and constitutional crisis. Right? The very idea. Boris Johnson. Alexander Boris de Feffel actual Johnson. Some sort of feckless dilettante. This is like finding out about Santa Claus. Hang on. What? Later, Fernando. While we had, yes, learned these things ad infinitum, if not ad nauseum before, the difference this week was that we learned them from the man principally responsible for getting Boris Johnson into Downing Street, i.e. Johnson's former special advisor and guy at the house party talking loudly about Bitcoin Dominic Cummings, who gave an interview to the BBC from which we learned that swiftly after helping engineer Johnson's thumping election win in 2019, Cummings began plotting to depose him. Within days of the election, you were discussing getting rid of him? Yes. Well, for all the reasons we've been discussing. He doesn't have a plan, he doesn't know how to be Prime Minister. And we'd only got him in there because we had to solve a certain problem, not because we thought that he was the right person to run in the country. So we've also learned that Dominic Cummings, Dominic Mackenzie Actual Cummings, of all people, is some sort of devious manipulator, the acceptance of whom into one's inner circle appears approximately as sagacious as keeping a snake in your sleeping bag. It has been quite the education this week. Yes, let's have that clip of everyone doing their Captain Renault from Casablanca bit. No. Really? Oh, that blows my mind. No way. Blow me down. Earlier in the week, almost by way of a trailer for Cummings Confessional, we learned of a pilot scheme. Attention passengers, we've now reached our destination. We hope you enjoyed the flight and have a nice day. Not that kind. 
Or that. But whatever, you've started now. Let's roll with it. The pilot scheme we learned of was one which exempts a select few recipients of a contact alert from the UK's Test and Trace app from the tedium of isolation. And we learned of it really very remarkably quickly after Sajid Javid, Secretary of State for Health, and apparently also for leaden irony, tested positive for COVID-19 in the run-up to what had been billed as Freedom Day on Monday. Javid's positive test result obviously nailed Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak, Chancellor of the Exchequer, as close contacts, but it was explained that they were on this pilot scheme, so it was all fine. This played, they learned, pretty badly with their many, many fellow citizens already confined by similar alerts. Do we have an angry mob audio file? Or can we make one? Whatever works. And we swiftly learned of a possible new world record for the U-turn, as the government executed the kind of manoeuvre that leaves you choking on tyre smoke, clutching a snapped-off handbrake, and wondering why your trousers are on backwards. We did look briefly at the idea of uh, us taking part in uh, the, the pilot scheme which allows people to test daily, but I think it's far more important that everybody sticks to the same rules, and that's why I'm going to be self-isolating until the 26th of July, Monday, the 26th of July. So we learned that Boris Johnson's Freedom Day will occur exactly one week after ours. Still time to move a bunch of stuff around to confuse him when he gets out. Elsewhere. We learned that the ongoing legal travails of pop warbler Britney Spears may end up fomenting a separatist rebellion in France. And remember where you heard this first, if Adam Curtis ever ties some balls-aching 12-hour-long documentary series to this premise. A British retailer seeking to wring revenue out of the fervid online legions waging social media campaigns on Spears' behalf commissioned 10,000 t-shirts bearing a hashtag emblem and the slogan, Free Britney. Except... Yeah, we're going to need some silly French accordion music. Something went askew somewhere, and the bemused clothes monger took delivery of 10,000 t-shirts demanding freedom not for Brittany as in Spears, but for Brittany as in the bit of France that juts into the Atlantic Ocean. But we learned, because researching obscurantist European secessionist groups actually is our idea of a good time, that a market for the misbegotten t-shirts might exist, in the shape of sympathisers with and foot soldiers of the clandestine militia seeking to liberate Brittany from the clutches of Paris, in which cause it once bombed a McDonald's in Quever. The name of this gang of rebels, we learned in our researches, is the Breton Revolutionary Army. You think there's a cheap joke coming now about the acronym and a possible future expansion of this putative-themed clothing line. But there isn't, because we're better than that, and you should be as well. For Monocle24, I'm Andrew Miller. 
Andrew, you may be better than that, but I'm certainly not, nor is Simon Brooke. So I can tell you that lingerie sales in the UK have boomed over the course of the pandemic. That's according to figures from the UK Online Retail Association, IMRG. Uh, So people are buying lingerie in lockdown, but it also seems that we women, or people with breasts, let me not be... Be correct about this. Yeah, Yeah, Um, And uh, people with breasts uh, are actually changing the way that we that we use underwear. There are plenty of articles to back that up. Yeah, I'll have to defer to you on the subject (laughs) of bras, but I do think in the bigger picture, this is quite interesting, isn't it? We've all got used to this fact that uh, business meetings and and any other sort of social interaction, we really only care about the waist up these days, don't we? What happens below that, so what, or whatever. Um, But it was interesting that uh, the way that one of those unusual... Uh, tangential effects that the pandemic has had on our behaviour. So you can imagine lingerie, uh, there's been an increase in sort of uh, athleisure as it's called as mm. well, isn't it? Comfortable jogging. Horrible sort of word. Sort of. Can we it not is. say athleisure? Who on put those two words and bolted <laughs> those two terms together? Uh, but it seems to be anything to do with slobbing around the house and perhaps also is it a feeling of wanting some kind of security in these very uncertain times, wanting to be sort of nurtured and cherished and cosseted and I don't know, something yeah. along uh, those lines. Catelyn uh, Moran had a fantastic column uh, in the Times uh, and she 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 detailed that glorious feeling that women experience when she comes home. Do, do you know what the first thing a woman does when she gets home is, Simon? Takes off her hat, <laughs> her shoes, her gloves. We take I'm off thinking... our bras. And for all of us, it's like, oh, oh. OK. And the the lockdown has been just one lovely, <laughs> lovely long time where we can do that. And also, I mean, coming back now into real life, particularly yeah. with this heat, I am yeah. noticing lots of people just not bothering to put really? them back on again. That's that. I mean, what does that tell us? Does that mean we're more relaxed or does that mean a sort of we just let go and we just don't care anymore? I'm not sure. I'd say I always thought women wore bras because it's more comfortable with a bra, isn't it? Or, well, no, it, d- it, it this depends on size and I don't think we I, need to get in there. I was but, going to say, I do remember <laughs> doing an interesting interview with Rigby and Pella, who are bra makers to the Queen, mm. and uh, that was a real education for me in, in terms of uh, should I ever want one made, which I wouldn't. Uh, the kind of you know, the real science and education involved in making a really good, well-fitting bra. Yeah, well, and the, the Guardian has a wonderful piece, um, and and just makes several points. Uh, Lockdown has released me from the bra, says one. Underwired bras now seem like an unkind way to treat my body. Gravity hasn't had the drastic effect I feared. Um, perhaps. I'll never wear one again, it says. But then lots of people saying, I've bought lots of new bras this year. And of course, the other thing that people are doing, I mean, you mentioned that horrible word that begins with A and hyphen L. Uh, we're not going to go there. Sorry, but yeah. perhaps we could say uh, loungewear. We're all we're yeah. buying pretty pyjamas too. We are, absolutely. And the other thing I think is that interesting as well is that uh, we've seen an increase in, a decrease, sorry, let's start with a decrease, a decrease in makeup because presumably women aren't going out so much obviously not during the pandemic so they're less interested in makeup but they there is an increase uh, an increase in sales of skincare so even if you don't want to put some schlap on and go out and look your best you can indulge you can feel a little bit better you can uh, as i say uh, be kind to yourself at home with uh, with sort of skin creams and face masks and stuff and it is interesting that those sales have risen certainly mm. i have to say can i just say underwired bra i mean i suppose i'd heard about it but that really does sound uncomfortable that sounds like something like 
mouth braces or something, but the whole idea of underwired, yeah, I can completely understand why you'd want to wave goodbye to that. Oh, okay, I read it really well. I'm not going to, I'll just wait. To, so listen, we're going to hand over to a story on the Olympics. Um, and, and, and I think we could attempt a clumsy segue there or something about sports bras. But I need to get to that quickly because I am actually going to show you my underwear. So you see, look, it's quite pretty, isn't it? It but is, It's not yeah. sore. Okay. Right, oh, that's a, good. Yeah. yeah. Um, perhaps you'd like but to describe it, Simon. It's sort of lacy, but, but still elegant as well. Yeah, so... Uh, but, Anyway, as I say, right. education yeah, yeah, for yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Now, a year after they were originally scheduled, the 2020 Olympics are finally underway in Tokyo. In front of an empty stadium, the opening ceremony took place yesterday. And this weekend is busy with a number of sports. But the Games have been plagued by controversy and opposition from the Japanese public, who overwhelmingly didn't want them to go ahead. Monocle 24's Olympic correspondent, Kieran Penders in Tokyo, he filed this update right after the ceremony. OK, it's pretty pink lace, though, isn't it? Pretty pink, exactly. Very, very tasteful. Yeah, absolutely. Please this was not the opening ceremony that Tokyo 2020 organisers had planned. Awarded to Japan in 2013, these Olympics were supposed to symbolise the nation's triumph over the adversity of the 2011 earthquake, tsunami and nuclear disaster that devastated Fukushima. In a rapidly changing world, with a mighty neighbour emerging just across the East China Sea, the Tokyo Olympics were intended to underscore Japan's economic and political strength in a show of soft power. The International Olympic Committee has the honour of announcing that the Games of the 32nd Olympiad in 2020 are awarded to the city of Tokyo. Instead, in the vast and empty Olympic Stadium on Friday night, the ceremony marked the start of a Games no longer wanted by the Japanese. An Olympics that will highlight the power of an unaccountable global sporting organisation over the people paying for its two-week-long festival. Welcome to the first COVID Games. After postponing Tokyo 2020 due to the pandemic, local organisers and the International Olympic Committee had hoped that the virus would be under control by July 2021. That has proven to be wishful thinking. Tokyo is currently in a state of emergency, with COVID numbers rising on a daily basis. Despite the latest outbreak and the rapid global spread of the Delta variant, 70,000 members of the Olympic movement, including 11,000 athletes and 5,000 journalists, have descended on Tokyo from all corners of the globe. Thank you for waiting, ladies and gentlemen. Passengers involved in the Olympic and Paralympic Games, please disembark the forward exit. The staff of the Games Organizing Committee... The Olympic family as it is somewhat optimistically labelled, has been arriving in recent days to a strict set of COVID countermeasures. Athletes are kept in a bubble consisting of the athletes' village and competition venues, while journalists cannot stray beyond the confines of a pre-approved activity plan for the first 14 days of their stay. At my own hotel, an elderly security guard keeps watch to ensure no deviations though I am allowed to the local convenience store, provided I am back within 15 minutes. Daily COVID testing and strict isolation measures are supposed to keep the Olympics safe for all. 
but with Tokyo 2020 visitors unable to use public transport and instead shuttled around on overcrowded Olympic buses, it remains to be seen whether the Games can make it to the opening ceremony. On Saturday, at long last, focus will turn to action on the pitch, in the pool and at the field. The IOC will be praying that a medal rush for Japan, which finished 6th in Rio in 2016 with 12 golds, can win over the sceptical Tokyo public. A recent opinion poll indicated that as many as 80% of locals don't want the Olympics to go ahead. But go ahead, they will. COVID is not the only health challenge facing athletes at the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. It's also really hot. With temperatures soaring above 30 degrees and high humidity, those competing in outdoor sports face sweltering times. Earlier on Friday, a Russian archer lost consciousness during the qualifying rounds. Her coach said that she couldn't stand it a whole day in the heat. A number of teams from around the world have spent recent weeks in warmer climes or in heat chambers to acclimatise. Due to COVID restrictions, they were only allowed into Japan this week. On Saturday, the home side will open the men's hockey tournament with a clash against Australia. With the sun beating down, I visited the hockey stadium to see how teams were handling the conditions on their final day of pre-tournament training. The heat will be a challenge. I think we're ready to meet that challenge. We've done a lot of work. We spent the um, last week preparing in Darwin before we got to Tokyo. That's the Australian women's coach, Katrina Bowser. After her side had finished training, I saw them guzzling blue ice slushies to stay cool and hydrated. If it wasn't for the COVID restrictions, I might have asked for a sip myself. For Monocle, in Tokyo, I'm Kieran Pender. Many thanks to our Olympic correspondent there, Kieran. Uh, and uh, just to tell you that Muhammad Yunus was honoured as an Olympic laureate on Friday. And if you'd like to know why and find out more about his work, it's all fascinating about microfinance and, and so on. Um, I interviewed him a little while ago on Meet the Writers. He, he won a Nobel Prize for that and he's written a very good book. Uh, and you can find that episode in our archives at monocle.com. Just before we go, Simon, did you watch the opening ceremony? I watched bits of it, yeah. I thought there was something... There was something sort of quite ethereal and mystical about the fact that it was almost the stadium was almost empty. I thought it looked really beautiful, and I suppose to some extent everybody's sort of trying to work out how you compete. You know, after the Beijing Olympics, which were so enormous and so grand, weren't they? So how do you create? You can't compete on budgets and size, probably, but how do you do something which is still really striking? And I think the Japanese, in terms of the the look of the ceremony with those uh, drones and things, I think they did a a pretty good job, didn't they? Yeah, the drones were amazing. Mm. Uh, some of the uniforms were a bit dodge <laughs> absolutely <laughs> well that's one of the things isn't it it's sort of the the sort of the, the the olympics isn't naff like eurovision or something but it does have that slightly naff element and yes the uniforms uh, i'm just looking at yahoo sport here where their commentator who's very unimpressed with the italians uh, he makes the point that actually um that uh, the italian uh uniform has been made since 2012 i think by giorgio armani so i mean this is italy this is armani what can go wrong well it has gone spectacularly <laughs> wrong this year apparently uh, according to your host sport their outfits were immediately noticeable for being so utterly confusingly awful it looks like the italian flag et pac-man and then got violently ill all over a white shirt even their shoes were covered with the italian flag and it's it is bizarre, I have to say. Yeah, I'm not sure quite where I've seen anything. It looks like one of those sort of like 1980s, 1990s budget airlines sort of... <laughs> 
uniforms. Well, luckily, uh, medals aren't uh, uh, handed out on a yeah, sartorial basis. Yeah, there won't be any bronzes even for this lot. <laughs> uh, that's all for this edition of Monocle on Sunday. Thanks so much for joining me, Simon. It's always a pleasure to have you here in the studio. Thanks also to our studio engineer, Sam Impeat, behind the glass, who won't also show us her underwear, which I think is extremely unsporting of her. Um, I'm Georgina Godwin. Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thank you for listening. Thank you.